Over the last week or so in South Africa, we woke up to news of yet another racist incident, this one having played out in the Free State. And it's a silly season in the news cycle, this period in December, in a year in which there is the African National Congress's elective conference that normally gets the lion's share of our attention, journalistically, but also as citizens and as consumers of the news. And because of the dates habitually chosen by the ANC, that normally covers our attention, at least until a couple of days before Christmas. But it is amazing how certain forms of oppression that obviously are insidious and continues the world over, most obviously racism and misogyny, doesn't take a break, doesn't go on holiday. And unsurprisingly, in a country like South Africa, with a particularly acute and a continued history into the present that manifests still very strongly of racism as well as misogyny, incidents of racism and misogyny are every day and doesn't care for the festive season, for your Christmas tree being up, for friends and family that you wish to spend quality time with, perhaps at the beach or the resort, somewhere locally or internationally. Racism does not go on holiday. You're listening to Eusebius on Times Live. That's this latest podcast on Times Live. And it's me, Eusebius McKaiser, exploring the major issues of the week. That means you're going to hear a lot of law, politics and ethics, how they intersect and how important these stories are in the life of all South Africans. When people saw their children must know these are sellouts. They put saliva on the paper. Mr. Julius Malema whispered and said sing it sing it and then they shared that zone no i'm not going to apologize can i have my ipad please so they stole it when a clip emerged of black teenagers being physically assaulted by white men who were on the uncontested version of events thus far, annoyed at the black bodies being inside the swimming pool area of this resort somewhere in the free state, assuming that they had no entitlement to be there in terms of the relevant category of entrance package for the resort, they were mortally offended at the prospect of these youngsters being inside the swimming pool, reserved ostensibly on their version reported thus far for those who are on a particular package of entry into the resort. Now, the problem is that this wasn't just a case of, no, unless you've paid the right right amount of money, You can't use this particular facility at the resort. It also came 
with the racist insinuation and in fact explicit on the report of one of the youngsters surviving this incident, the explicit claim that it is a swimming pool reserved for white people only. And then you have what is far more than a fracker, but in fact a physical assault and an attempted murder of the one white adult in relation to the one black teenager and having him in water after shoving him into the pool and apparently saying in Afrikaans, you wanted to taste water, you'll taste it now, and then keeping his head under the water, which could have led to the fatal outcome. And the police, with the guidance of the National Prosecuting Authority, will now have to decide what the appropriate category of alleged criminality is that needs investigation and has to be taken before a court of law. Some said common assault, criminal urea, but at least one of these white men have now reportedly been charged with specifically attempted murder. And so that's the situation where we are at as of now. I wanted to comment in this piece on the media framing of racism because it's really important. Race and racism do not go out of fashion. Don't take a break during the Christmas vacation. And therefore, we need to have our critical faculties working properly so that we are able to respond clinically, accurately, and with the full intellectual, political, and creative might possible on our part in the continuous fight back against racism and colonialism's continued manifestations in the present. The role of the media, I think we do not often reflect on enough in sustaining racism in society or not innocent for a lesser sin because this too doesn't help the fight against racism, where the media doesn't actively prop up and support racism, we need to be vigilant about frameworks chosen by sub-editors, chief sub-editors, editors, reporters, or us as columnists and commentators, which inadvertently downplays the gravity of a particular story in a way that minimizes the reality of and the impact of racism. And I had a look at some of the reporting across media houses, including our own. So I'm also self-examining Arena Holdings as a form of peer critique. The same with News24, and also with a public broadcaster and with some other media houses. So I'm talking about all of South African media in the comments that I want to make. And there's a couple of comments I want to land quite bluntly, and it's open for debate. As always with my podcast, you do not have to agree with what I have to say, but I do hope that you will find it thoughtful commentary on my part. Use it, don't use it, share it with a friend, debate it, and land with your own viewpoint. But what I am aiming at is to get you to think perhaps a little bit harder about an issue 
that you weren't aware is actually worth thinking of, i.e. what might be said about the way the media is framing the issue. So here's my first beef with a lot of the media coverage. There's this weird reference to racially charged incident. In fact, the last story I led, I had to take a deep breath because I was so annoyed at the downplaying of what happened here. And this was a, this particular example just coincidentally happened to be from News 24. But as I said, even my own colleagues, our colleagues in the arena holding stable have had similar watered down descriptions of what have happened here. Now, let me say before I give the example and analyze it, I'm perfectly aware that you do not want to be falling foul of the necessary codes of conduct that we've signed up to from a media ethics point of view, a media law point of view. You don't want to be opening yourself up to the possibility of being sued for defamation on the part of the company or even in your personal capacity as an employee, potentially, if that exists so insofar as perhaps you have a contractual agreement with your company that, I don't know, even if editorial processes should take care of mistakes on your part when you're handing your work, that if nevertheless there's a legal case that were to come about as a result of your byline, that you would be footing the bill for any loss of that case in the event that the company loses a defamation suit or some such a case, perhaps, to the press onwards. So it's very important that we get things right factually, and I can see why, then, it is important to err on the side of qualifying every single sentence that you write about the incident. But even so, there are choices we make that are just silly in the context of a society grappling with the reality of racism and white supremacy and its vestiges that continue into the present, which does not require us to say really, really silly, watered-down things about what is going on here when there's clear video evidence, an uncontested version, and we've made absolutely every attempt to make sure that every actor in the story has an opportunity in terms of balanced journalism to respond to how they feature in the story. And you can then choose frameworks that are sensible from a social justice point of view while still being consistent with the necessary codes of conduct and media law that govern the way we do our business. Which brings me to the first example. I mean, late last night I was reading an article by someone referring to this as, quote, the alleged racially charged incident. And I thought to myself, what the if? The word alleged already does heavy lifting in that description by not committing yourself as a writer or as a company to taking a judgment call about whether or not there was race-based motivation involved here in this assault. 
So if you have the word alleged there, it frees you up legally to say a little bit more than racially charged as your next two choices of words. It is not true that it was allegedly racially charged. It is an alleged racism event. And so to say it's an alleged racially charged event is to be willfully, cowardly, in a way that minimizes the enormity of racism in our society. Can anyone tell me, in terms of media, ethics, or law, why it would have been problematic to say instead the alleged racism at a resort, as opposed to the alleged racially charged incident? It just doesn't make sense. You've already said it's alleged, so you've covered yourself. Now, can we be accurate about what the allegation is? It's an allegation of racism. And that's problematic to reduce it to racially charged. Because racially charged is a far lower bar in terms of what needs to be present for something to be called racially charged. You can say, I drove into the supermarket area parking lot in Orania as a person of color, and I could see from the looks I was being given by people who are racialized white, that I do not belong there, and the atmosphere felt racially charged. I can imagine recording that in a piece of audio journalism about spending a couple of hours in Orania. Now, there's a huge difference between getting a ski of a look, getting a weird look in Fentersdorp in the 90s as a black person and it being racially charged, my mere bodily presence, and what played out here, which we now know from a video that is circulating and I haven't seen any claim that this video is fake and doctored. So no, it was not a racially charged incident. I will grant you alleged even, although I think once we move from news reporting to the news analysis and opinion part, I think you can be a little bit more accurate and even rethink the use of the word alleged. But let's say this is a page one, page two story, as it were, or the main part of your news corner on your website. You use the word alleged. Okay, I'll give you that. But why the hell are you saying this is racially charged? This is an alleged racism act. Why is it important to be accurate? Because you undermine the experiences of the survivors of racism with a inaccurate underdescription of what had taken place. And in turn, if you have a thousand such framings of the story, you make it harder collectively at a structural level for society to begin to eliminate the vestiges of white supremacy and anti-black racism in society because of this weird fear in the newsroom to call a spade a spade and instead calling a spade 
a garden implement. I mean, it really, it makes no sense. So that's one example. The second is, I've seen so many stories, again, across our media houses, that will refer to these black teenagers racially, but make no reference to the skin color of the men. So you get weird descriptions to the effect of an incident in Bloemfontein in which adults allegedly assaulted, I mean, very few will say assaulted, but let, let's say assaulted for purposes of the point I want to make, an incident in which adults allegedly assaulted black teenagers. Now you ask yourself, listen, either you commit to mentioning race or you don't mention race at all. If you have some internal house policy that race doesn't matter, color blindness is important, that this is just an incident between adults and teenagers that are really disgusting um, and unfortunate, but race has got nothing to do with it unless and until, I don't know, a court of law declares the issue to be racism, then presumably you shouldn't refer to the black teenagers as black because then their blackness is not relevant to the way you report on such incidents. But if you do recognize that the race of the teenagers matter, then you are the one by your own standard as a reporter, sub-editor, chief sub-editor, have now decided that race matters. Now, I do think race matters in the story, but I'm not going by my own standard. If you mention the race of the teenagers, then you have taken the decision that race matters. But then why the hell are you not mentioning the race of the adults? And I think this is really important, deep personal reflection that headline writers need to, to do. Because it's not a perfect science. Just like us writers bring the sum total of our life experiences, our personal politics and convictions, our educational backgrounds, to our stories that we decide, A, to pick, the arguments and comments we develop in response to them, and then pen essays, mini-essays, or regular column entries about. Similarly, there is nothing value-neutral and quote-unquote objective about the way in which you frame the story when it comes to choosing the pull-out quotes and the main headline and also perhaps a slightly longer or a subheading for a piece. And we have to disabuse ourselves of the notion that when you work on a piece of reporting that you get from a reporter in the editorial division that you are now engaged in some sort of value-neutral scientific process that is simply about knocking into shape the words of the reporter. In fact, you are revealing a lot about your own political politics in the way in which you frame some of these issues. So, for example, when you are not referring to the adults as white, but you refer to the teenagers as black, you are telling me as a reader that you are scared to name fully the group, racial group membership of the alleged perpetrators of racism. 
Because if you weren't scared, it leaves an obvious question. Why refer to black teenagers but refer to adults, but the adults are not described racially, but the teenagers are? That doesn't make sense. That's an obvious inconsistency. But the deeper question, which is for self-examination, is forget about the plumbing work that editing is about. What does it say to us about your personal politics if it is easy for you to say, black teenagers, black teenagers, black teenagers, black teenagers, black teenagers. But it takes, quote-unquote, courage to write the words, white adults. And I think it's worth reflecting on that. That's got nothing to do with the technical elements of editing. It's got everything to do with politics and the links between personal political conviction and editorial choices. Thirdly, I then sometimes see in some of the stories a reference to white adult men. But interestingly enough, there are very few stories I've seen that refer to the race of everyone in the same breath. So you've seen some stories where the teenagers are not described racially, but the men are. Now, that's kind of interesting, because now you ask yourself, okay, you're serious, is that a little bit better than the stories that don't mention the race of the perpetrators, but only of the victims? And the answer is actually no. At best, it's marginally better, but it's also problematic, because what it does is it identifies the alleged aggressor racially by saying white men. But if it doesn't tell us they're victims, then their victims could have been anyone. Their victims could have been white children. In which case, what they did is wrong, but it's not the same kind of wrong as a wrong that is motivated by racism. And what is salient about this video is the motivation for why the white men acted as they did in a scenario that was reminiscent of petty apartheid, where you had separate amenities legislated to keep black and white bodies apart so they don't mix because of the racist apartheid belief that black bodies are not fully human and that there's something about the humanity of white people which cannot be assumed to be present in black people which humanity of white people would be solid if it was to come into contact, lo and behold, with the body and the skins of black people. So there's a very specific, detailed, historical racism motive that's present that you lose when you write about white men, but you don't mention the black teenagers as the object of their alleged racism. So that too is problematic. And again, I ask myself, is this merely because you have a small number of inches to cover as media in newsprint? Or is it because of a fear to write plainly and fully about racism on your news site? There can't be a space problem because most of the articles were digital in real time being filed online rather than in the hard copy newspaper. So that excuse goes out the window, which means that you are simply uh, not even making a decision actively 
to ignore the skin color of the victims, but only referring to white men, you are probably inadvertently, rather than actively, revealing your personal politics. And again, I come back to what I've said a couple of minutes ago. This is not about the technicalities of editing. This is about how even editing as an activity in the silos of our newsroom, just like writing fiction can reveal deep aspects of the politics and principles of the writer, similarly, the editorial choices that editors make, that divisional heads make, editors-in-chief, sub-editors, um, and chief subs make, can tell us a lot about their personal political conviction. And then the last thing I want to reflect on is the use of the passive form. Black teenagers experienced alleged racism, full stop, is not a useful sentence in a society in which we must deal with racism because that kind of formulation makes it seem as if they could have been struck by lightning out of nowhere and the lightning was racist. Just rewind what I've just said if it went over your head. Or may, let me repeat it to be clearer. If you write passively, then you are implying harm happened to person A and B, but you you are not telling us who did the harm by starting that sentence with the subject and a verb that describes what the subject did. It's like saying a woman was raped last night at her home. It may be factually true, but the lack of a full description of who had raped her or that she was raped by a man or whoever did that ghastly evil act allegedly undermines the fight against rape culture because it makes it seem as if rape happens rather than person so-and-so raped. Then you name the rapist and you are clear that there was agency involved that was exercised in an evil manner on the part of the rapist and you unambiguously say they raped her so that you do justice to the heinous experience that the survivor now is living with and has to experience the aftermath of. And the same goes for racism. You can't use passive formulations and say, at a resort in the free state, an alleged racial incident was experienced by some teenagers. That kind of sentence makes it seem as if it could have been immaculate racism, which is absolute balderdash. So you must make sure that you write sentences that in fact start off with a description of who the subjects are, their perpetrators, what they did, who the objects of their evil are, and then you can give the details of how things are playing out in terms of the minute-by-minute -minute update of what the police are saying, the NPA are saying reaching out to all the actors in the story and getting their sides and their comment and get all of that woven in. And then on top of all that, of course, 
although we, we might now be moving from straight reporting into analysis, is then to contextualize it by recalling stats with the help of the Human Rights Commission, for example, of volumes of racism, let's call it petty racism, in society so that we have an understanding of the gravity of the story by juxtaposing it against the reality of how often it happens or not, so that we have an understanding as readers and as the public of whether we are dealing here with an act of evil that is unusual or whether this is part of a continuous pattern in society that is a hangover of colonialism and apartheid. So I really think we need to do much better. This is a story that has dominated the news for the last uh, couple of days, side by side with the story of the tanker that exploded in Boxburg. And those were the two sort of big stories over the last week or so after the ANC's conference. And yet we've missed an opportunity yet again on something as serious as racism as the media to lead intellectually, politically, without departing from our basic role to inform and to hold accountable. Because the one response to what I'm saying that I do not accept, and I'd be happy to have a debate moderated by someone else, if there is a journal that feels slighted by my podcast entry today. I do not accept the idea that my critiques of the media frameworks is really material for the op-ed pages. Because the way in which we frame these stories on pages one, two, and three of a newspaper, or their equivalent digitally, can make a massive difference to whether or not we move closer to a just society where there's racial justice or not. And I cannot see how any newsroom that is serious about the country within which it is located can think that it is a choice whether or not your journalism should contribute towards justice or not.